chapter 7 of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, the reason I put this stuff up on the board is because uh, the first historical period was the Vedic period, and then there was the Buddhist thing that happened, and then Shankara and other things happened, everything's a thing. And so in the Gita, the Gita is very famous for being a synthesis. It, it touches upon all these things and kind of wraps them all up together. And so I just gave a, a simple example of verses from the Gita that directly touch upon, let's say, the earlier Vedic religions or the polytheistic and certain Buddhist concerns. During the class, I'll talk about what I mean. I'll explain what I mean, but it's just an example of how you could take verses from the Gita and see how they're addressing other historical traditions within India. Uh, so we'll begin. Good morning. Oh, uh, I think these are your papers, some of these. Yeah, you're the proud winner. So chapter 7, Krishna begins by saying that, um, that with your mind uh, firmly attached to me and practicing yoga and taking shelter of me, I shall now explain how you will know me. It's in the future. You talk gas, you see. How you will know me. Asamshayam, without doubt, and samadram, completely. So especially, uh, beginning in chapter 7, especially chapter 7 through 12 in the Gita, there's 18 chapters. The first six chapters introduce all kinds of basic things like karma and sacrifice and so on and yoga. And then in chapter 7 through 12, the middle six chapters of the Gita, Krishna talks a lot about himself. It's sort of like the chewy caramel center, you know, the Bhagavad Gita. So Krishna talks a lot about himself and about love of God and so on and so forth. So these, in a sense, these are often seen as, as the intimate parts of the Gita. So Krishna begins this section, 7-1, first verse of chapter 7, saying, I will explain to you how you, can know, how you will know me without doubt and completely. And then he says that uh, he's going to give all knowledge. He says, Sabhijana, with realization, with experience. It's not simply a philosophy he claims, but actually he's going to explain how you can experience this knowledge. And then he, he makes this very bold claim. He says, that knowing this, there's nothing further to be known. That Krishna claims he's going to give all the basic principles of reality. And he says that among thousands of human beings, perhaps one seriously endeavors for spiritual perfection, and out of thousands of those who actually endeavor for perfection, perhaps one can know him. So these are very bold statements come right at the beginning of chapter 7. Then Krishna, uh, beginning with 7.4, he divides up the universe into basic categories, basic ontological categories, and claims that in the entire universe, everything that exists is either his literally inferior or superior energy. The words Krishna, and then I put all these things on the board to, because, like, what kind of philosophy is this that Krishna's giving? The word prakriti in Sanskrit means nature. Uh, this root kri means to do or to make, and kriti means something which is done or made. So prakriti means matter or material nature. And Krishna is a feminine noun. Krishna describes that there is a, uh, an apara, an inferior and a para prakriti. So the inferior prakriti is just the normal division, earth, water, fire, air, uh, ether, mind, intelligence, and false ego. This is sort of a common list. The idea is that there are five gross elements, which you could think about in modern terms as solids, liquids, radiant energies, and uh, gases, and space itself. The idea 
in all ancient cultures around the world, space is an element. Like you can measure the space between us. Even if there's a complete vacuum between us, let's say if you're 20 feet away, you can still measure the space. So space is considered an element. And uh, then there are cognitive material elements, such as mind, intelligence, and false ego. These are considered to be sort of like mental coverings of pure consciousness. And this is similar to Buddhism. If you remember the, uh, when we studied Buddha's second sermon, how he talks about this aggregate, how the, uh, we're covered by mind and so on. This is not the real self, material mind, material intelligence. Buddha talked about those things. So same thing in the Bhagavad Gita. And the superior energy, the prakriti, is us. The idea is that souls are the superior energy of God. So in the universe, there's basically conscious living beings, and there is unconscious, unliving matter, just like this chair, assuming it's not alive. That'd be amazing if somebody turned out to be alive, but I don't think it is. So, so the idea is that within the universe, there's dead, unconscious energy, dead matter, and then there are living beings. And both of these are energies of God. Now, Descartes actually proposed this, that that uh, type of what's called Cartesian dualism, that there's mind and there's matter. There's the physical nature and then there's consciousness. And he was criticized, saying this was, this is a dualistic philosophy. How could consciousness and matter interact if they're really separate energies? That was the main criticism against Descartes. And of course, Krishna kind of preempts that objection by saying that they're, they're sister energies in a sense, because Prakriti is feminine, in the sense that they both emanate from the same source. So if you consider, for example, in a sense, cold and heat are opposite, but yet cold and heat come from the same, well, air conditioner or heater. You know, you just adjust the dial and you get cold or heat, which are... And so in the same way, the idea is that, that both these energies emanate from the same source, so they can interact. Your consciousness interacts with matters. Like, you can raise your arm. Or, for example, if someone taps you on the shoulder, it affects consciousness. So matter affects consciousness. Consciousness affects matter because they're both coming from the same source. And uh, anyway, that's, that's basically what Krishna is explaining in Chapter 7 of the Gita. And um, any questions on that? And he emphasized there's nothing else in the universe except these two energies, and they're both his energies. That's, um, let's see what else we talk about. Uh, so much here. In terms of, uh, Krishna makes a very, I'm going to skip a few things. Krishna makes a very interesting point, which is very different from what is called Abrahamic religions. Uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam all share certain things. All three religions accept the Old Testament, uh, and Christianity accepts the Old and New Testament. Of course, the Jews only accept the Old Testament. But in all these religions, uh, to some extent, you have a jealous God, the idea of a jealous God. And in the Bhagavad Gita, you have a very different concept. Uh, you don't have a jealous God. It's a God who is willing to accept worship through many different forms because there's a sense in which... Uh, let me give you an example. Let's say you go to school. And, uh, well, when I was a kid and I went to school, my mother told me you have to do whatever the teacher says. When I was a little kid. And so my mother might not have known the teacher very well, but it's the principle. You have to follow the teacher. You have to learn obedience. Or, or if you're in the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or whatever. So there are situations, or, or, or let's say, for example, if, if you're taking a PE class and you have a coach. So the idea is you're learning certain principles, which are good, let's say, discipline or, or, or become intellectually 
healthier, physically healthier, to learn character, to learn how to carry out instructions and so on. And so whoever embodies that authority, it's not really a big issue. Like if this is your teacher or that's your teacher, as long as the basic curriculum is being transmitted, as long as you're learning the basic principles. If you have a competent physical trainer or a competent teacher and so on and so forth. And so in the Gita, there's really this approach that uh, what's important is that the principles are important. The principles are important so that if you get the basic principle that there is divine authority in the universe, that somehow the universe is coming from some divine power, and if you're trying to submit or, or to somehow cooperate with that divine authority, it doesn't matter that much what you call it. I mean, it, it, that's not to say that there isn't ultimately, there aren't ultimately names of God, or there's, there isn't ultimately authoritative, detailed information about God. There is a specific God that can manifest in various forms. But to some extent, the principles themselves are valuable. The principles themselves. And therefore, Krishna says that whatever you worship, uh, you actually get a result, even though the worship is ultimately meant for the Supreme God. And there, and we, I've actually uh, noted this myself. For example, I've seen a few cases uh, in different Indian traditions. I've observed that um, there are large numbers of people following, let's say, a particular guru and completely enthusiastic about this guru. The gurus sometimes think the guru is God or the guru is a representative of God and they're completely devoted. And then it turns out the guru uh, was not really himself or herself practicing. It turns out, to some extent, the guru may have been a phony in the sense that the guru on the side was doing all kinds of really bizarre things. Uh, sort of, you know, affected by the dark side of the force. So, it's interesting because as long as the people believed that the guru actually embodied certain, let's say, uh, acceptable principles like that um, they thought the guru was pure. This is a pure soul. This is a person who's himself surrendered to God. This is a person who is engaging us in service selflessly for our benefit and so on and so forth. Seeing the guru as a, as a pure soul. As long as the people thought that, they were not only enthusiastic, they actually made spiritual progress in, in a sense. You could say in a sense that they Let's say they, they gave up certain bad habits and they became less selfish. They felt that they were somehow connected to God. And uh, they were devoting their lives. The one case, one spectacular case uh, of, of a big guru turned out to be uh, very problematic. People, let's say, going from the West, from America, from Europe, and, and, and traveling around to villages and helping poor people and really leading a selfless, inspired life. And when they found out the guru was a phony, uh, it's interesting, some of them, some of them just totally bailed out and said, ah, forget it all. And they went back to America and just, you know, say, I'm going to become selfish again. And, you know, I was following certain principles, I'm not, I'm not going to follow those principles. And, 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 some, and some people just continue to follow the principles, may, not, may sever their tie to that guru, some of them just sort of are in total denial. Well. My guru is God, so if it turns out my guru is engaged in all kinds of immoral activities, including, you know, uh, uh, sexual child abuse and things like that, uh, you know, the guruji can do that because he's God, and God can do anything. So, anyway, I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things that go on. But the point I wanted to focus on here, there's a series of verses. There's a series of verses, uh, chapter 7, text um, 20 through... Uh, 
23, so, so I'll read those, I'll translate them literally from, I guess I could read them in the English part of the book, but anyway. Krishna says literally that those whose knowledge, jnana, those whose knowledge has been stolen or taken away by selfish desires, they surrender to or approach other gods. In other words, rather than approaching the supreme god, they approach, so to speak, the nature gods, the polytheistic gods, because they want material benefits. They want material benefits. Like if you worship Indra, then your crops will get rained on, you know, the right amount, the right time of year, you'll get all kinds of benefits. There, there's a whole, uh, there's a kind of verse in the Vedas which are called, the literature is called Phala Shruti. Shruti means Veda or scriptural verse, and Phala means fruit, you know, verses promising rewards, like anyone that performs this ceremony will have all kinds of brilliant children and be very rich and live a long life and go to a material heaven. So, Krishna says that uh, people whose wisdom has, has been stolen by these selfish desires, they approach these gods because they want the, re- the rewards. They, they want the prizes. Life is kind of like you know, a big Jeopardy game. So, then Krishna says that uh, So, they are sort of governed by their own natures. Because according to what your nature is, you, you have a particular material desire. So you go shopping through the Vedic catalog. It's like, you know, okay, I think I'd like one of these. So you have to perform this ceremony and worship that god. It's, it's just, so in that sense, Krishna is saying here, here and elsewhere in the Gita, the Vedas are kind of like this shopping catalog. And so you decide what you want, then you decide to worship a certain god. And that's governed by your own nature, what your desires are, what your material ambitions are. And then Krishna says that um, So, uh, whatever person undertakes to worship whatever form of divine power, uh, whatever person undertakes to worship whatever form of divine power, devoted with faith, devoted with faith, Krishna says that, oops, actually there's a mistake here in the Sanskrit. Anyway, uh, Krishna says, in every case, I actually give that worshiper literally unmoving faith in that object. So, it's a very interesting approach. This is not a jealous God. This is actually quite a liberal God. Shouldn't use words like that in uh, campaign season. But anyway, not in the sense he's a Democrat, but... It's a very liberal idea in the sense that whatever you want to worship, whatever your desires are, whatever you want to worship, that God will actually give you literally unmoving faith, unmoving faith in that object. And then Krishna says, Sadhya endowed with that particular faith, endowed with that faith which God has made strong in you, you undertake the worship, come on, and you actually get what you wanted. Krishna says, you actually get your wishes. But my Aiva Bihitan Hitan, those wishes were actually granted by me alone. This is very interesting. And, and to like, why would, I mean, according to this theory, this is what God does, why would God do something like that? And uh, that whatever you want to worship, you, God will actually make your faith strong, and you'll actually get some of your wishes fulfilled. Even though God alone is giving those things, you'll believe that you got them from here or there. Uh, this gets into the underlying teleology, uh, the reason for which the, 
the world was made. And that is, according to the Bhagavad Gita, uh, and similar literatures like the Bhagavad Purana that we'll talk about, the world is created to give souls a chance to take their best shot at material enjoyment and ultimately realize that their, their real happiness is in love, loving God purely and loving other souls purely, rather than in trying to exploit dead matter. And so the idea is that uh, whatever material desires we have, uh, God, in a sense, he focuses us, he actually encourages us, yeah, go for it, try to get that, and actually arranges for you to obtain what you wish so you can, so to speak, get it out of your system. You can experience it. This is what it's like, and then decide, is this really what I want? Is this really the best possible thing that I could have in life? And so we have a very interesting approach here. Whatever you want to worship to get whatever object, God will make your faith strong, unmoving, and actually you'll get your wishes fulfilled. And So in a sense, this is one explanation for the variety of human religion the variety of human religion, because there's a God who's actually facilitating everyone's different approach to religion, so that people can experience what they wanted, and freely experience it. Because after all, you could say if you're coerced into worshiping a certain way, like if you don't worship this God, or this, you don't worship in this way, you'll be tortured forever. The problem is that it's like, it's like someone putting a gun to your head and saying, tell me you love me. Okay. I love you. Now, could you please put the gun down? So, but is that real love? So, the idea is that um, love is something you freely choose, and to coerce someone or to threaten someone into loving you is really, I think, something which is not logically possible. So here the idea is that try everything you want, enjoy everything you want, and if you freely decide that you love God, then, that's, then you can come to God. And in the meantime, what happens to you, and we'll see this later in the Gita, like, let's say you don't choose God, then what happens to you? Then Krishna will explain what happens to you is, you just, it just depends on the quality of your behavior. You, you go into a moral system. In other words, if you, if you accept God, then you enter into a direct relationship with God. But if you don't want God, and you simply want to be in this world, then objectively, based on the moral quality of your behavior, you get reasonable rewards and punishments. And therefore, Krishna will talk about these three qualities, these three gunas. So if you act in goodness, you get good rewards. If you act in passion, you sort of get the middle level. If you do things which are destructive to yourself or others, then you get bad results, which merely show you what you've done. It's like, hold, karma's like holding the big mirror to you. So whatever you've done, now you can know what it feels like. Whatever you cause to someone else, whatever you make someone else feel, it comes back to you, so you can, it's like cosmic sensitivity training. Anyway, so, so that's the system. Any questions? That, that's the system which Krishna is explaining here. No? Then, then in chapter 8, um, and there's so much stuff here, but there's no time. In chapter 8, Krishna discusses what uh, is called in religious studies eschatology. Um, eschatos in Greek means the end 
the end or the final whatever. So eschatology means it's it's the philosophy of what happens to you when you die. What happens either what happens to you individually when you die, or what happens at the the end of time. Uh, in other words, when the world ends, what happens, or when you're present life ends, what happens? Where do you go? Where does the world go? And so on. So again, Krishna presents uh, what in its own way is a rational system. He says in chapter 8 that um, whatever you remember, whatever you're remembering at the time of death, when you're leaving this body, whatever you remember determines where you go. And again, it's not like, well, there's, I heard this joke. There's this Indian joke where... Um, Based on this teaching of the Gita, one guy wanted to make sure he went to material heaven. So he named all his sons after different gods, like Indra, Varuna, and so on. Because the idea was that that way he could always, he'd always think of his children. And at the time of death, he'd think of one of his sons and go to some material heaven. This guy, this guy owned a store. So he's on his deathbed, and he, uh, so he said, who is here? And someone said, all your sons are here. Varun, are you here? Yes, father. Indra, are you here? Yes, father. So he answered all his sons. The last thing he said before he died was, damn, who's in the store? And then he died. So, anyway, the idea is you want, you want to remember the gods. So, yeah. So th- this, this doesn't simply mean that whatever, like you can have, have any kind of life and at the end of life you just think of something good and then up, up you go. It's, if you read books about near-death experiences where people's lives flash before them, the idea is that at the end of your life, uh, kind of everything gets totaled up. It's like at the end of the day, they push a button on the cash register and the day's total comes up. So it's kind of like, Christian says, smudan bhavan, at the end of life, uh, we have created a certain state of being, a certain state of consciousness. We've lived a certain way by our activities, by our words, by our thoughts, the way we treated people, the way we treated ourselves. So at the end, at the time of death, there's a certain state of existence that we have cultivated, that we've created, and that state of existence comes to our mind and takes us to our next life. So in that sense, there's a continuity from life to life. And then Krishna says that if someone remembers me at the end of life, then one goes to me. So therefore, the whole bhakti tradition, uh, bhakti yoga, and, and, and the Vaishnava tradition, and for that matter, even like the Shaiva tradition that we'll talk about later, uh, is focused on remembering God at every moment, fixing your mind on God, so that at the end of life, you will be elevated to a spiritual destination. And so, and so the whole system is based on this, training the mind to always think of God. And therefore, you'll see in spiritual ashrams, they have paintings, or, you know, posters on the wall, different pictures of, of God or goddess, whatever. And at the time of initiation, people will get a spiritual name, which is, which is the name of God. And, you know, there's regular classes in scripture. Food is offered to God. The idea is to sort of immerse yourself in this remembrance of God, because it will determine your future. And so that's, that's kind of the essence of the Bhakti Yoga system. Another important point Krishna makes in chapter 8 is uh, he, he refers to himself, well, how does that, uh, well, Krishna says in 8.8, 8.8, that Abhyasa Yoga Yuktena, that, that uh, 
practicing the yoga system and with your mind completely fixed on God, uh, Krishna says, always meditating upon the Lord, you will go to that supreme divine person. Supreme divine person. We talked about the Vedic tradition, we talked about the Buddhist tradition, and Shankar and different things. And so here Krishna is claiming directly in the Bhagavad Gita, so much so that it's just like, it's, it completely puzzles me how that Shankar used the Gita as part of his Vedanta apparatus and, and argued for something impersonal. Because Krishna clearly says here that there's, there is a supreme divine person. And then he, then he refers uh, to that person, to himself. He uses the term achintya rupa. Achintya means inconceivable, and rupa means form. Having an inconceivable form or body. Having an, an inconceivable spiritual form. So this is, this is not at all impersonal. And, uh, again, to, to say a few, well, let me see, before I do that, I wrote these things in the board, I thought I'd talk about them. Krishna, in, in chapter 7, again in chapter 9, especially in chapter 10, identifies himself with certain aspects of the world, like, among all the mountains, I'm the Himalayan, the Himalayan mountains, or, or I'm the self of all creatures. In other words, he identifies himself as the greatest in every category of material things. And so there is a philosophy, pantheism, which I wrote, just Greek, pan means all in Greek or everything, and theism, theos, God, so that everything is God. And then you may have read in the book, there's something called panentheism, because what Krishna's talking about is not like, well, here's, we do it this way, take this piece of chalk. We, will, we can actually explain all these different philosophies by uh, just talk about this piece of chalk. And, um, of course, going to pantheism, this chalk would actually be somehow God. Or as much God as anything else. That everything is just God. Which I, that's not obviously Krishna's teaching. Panentheism in all. In other words, God is in everything. So that's the Bhagavad Gita. God is actually in the chalk. That ultimately this chalk is uh, Krishna's apara, inferior energy. It's part of nature. It's, it's made of material elements. So... This is actually the manifestation of the energy, the power, the nature of God. And God is within this chalk. God is actually within every atom of the chalk. And so a perfect yogi could see God even within this chalk because the chalk is God's energy. Now, that's panentheism. He knows, well, never mind that for now. Now take the Vedic. What would the Vedic religion, I mean the earlier Vedic thing, the Vedas say about this chalk? They'd say probably it's just chalk, it, you know, realism. This is just a piece of chalk, and it's important, well, since there are no Vedic injunctions that you need to use chalk for Vedic sacrifices, it's not that important. It really has no religious significance unless there's a Vedic injunction saying that you need to use chalk when you do a sacrifice. Because all that's really important is doing sacrifices to get to heaven, and so if this isn't part of the sacrifice, it has no religious significance. Now, the Buddhists came along, and with their Pratitya Samutpada, they would say that, you know, this chalk is empty. This is empty, because you call it chalk, or I call it chalk, but take the whiteness. I mean, whiteness itself is not chalk, and you could pulverize it literally like polvo, you know, dust. You, you could just pulverize this, reduce it to dust, and so there is no chalk. There's just different parts. And someone made the chalk. It doesn't exist independently. And the chalk's going to turn into something else. And we write on the board, and this will be erased, and so it'll just vanish into the air. 
So therefore, there is no, there is no real chalk. I mean, this exists, and you can use it for now, but in a higher sense, this is completely empty. There is no chalk, ultimately. There is no independently existing thing called chalk. Now, what will Shankar say about the chalk? <laughs> Shankar would say that, um, okay, in the conventional sense, the chalk is there, but ultimately everything is Brahman. And so the idea you have that this chalk is white as opposed to other colors, that it's sort of cylindrical as opposed to other shapes, that it's a certain size, all the specificity, all the specific conditions and characteristics of the chalk are ultimately an illusion. Because you can see them now and you can work with it now, but ultimately there's only Brahman. Brahman is undifferentiated. There, there aren't different colors in Brahman. There aren't different sizes. There aren't different shapes. And therefore, the chalk is ultimately Brahman because there's only Brahman. Nothing exists but Brahman. And uh, Brahman is one. There aren't two things in Brahman. Well, I, I think you can see in a sense that what Krishna is saying about it, I think this explains why the Bhagavad Gita became so important in India, because it's kind of common sense. First of all, the Gita would say, yeah, this is really a piece of chalk. Sure. In terms of its dependent origination, its emptiness, yeah, someone made the chalk, and the chalk is temporary. In fact, Krishna says everything in this world is temporary. He says that. But still, the underlying energy, and this agrees with modern science, the underlying energy really exists. There really is material energy here. And the chalk is also Brahman, not in the sense that everything specific about it, its shape, size, color, and everything aren't real, but it's Brahman in the sense that it's the energy of God. Krishna says it's the Ahura, the inferior energy of God, because it's not alive to the best of our knowledge. This chalk is not alive and not conscious, but it's still the energy of God. Everything that exists is the energy of God. And so it's kind of a common sense approach, and yet it sees the spiritual basis of it. It agrees with modern science in terms of its energy, which can't be created or destroyed. It's just transformed. And so ultimately, this understanding of chalk and everything else ultimately became the most popular, widespread view of it. So I think you can see how it kind of is common sense, but at the same time it's spiritual, etc., etc. Any questions on the chalk? No? Okay. That was the chalk moment of glory. Henotheism, by the way, is the idea that there's only one God, but God takes different forms at different times. So, in the Vedas, when you're addressing Indra, Indra stands for the Supreme God. When you're addressing Vishnu, Vishnu stands for the Supreme God. So, any one of these can equally stand for the Supreme God. That's also not the teaching of the Gita. Krishna will teach there really is a specific Supreme God. And that worshipping the, uh, the demigods or the gods of nature is uh, not actually getting to the real point. Although you still get some rewards, but it's not the real point. You get the runner-up prize. Now, Krishna also, like Buddhism, he calls this world Dukkaliyam, a place of suffering. Remember Dukkha? That's the big word for Buddhism, suffering. Buddha actually is, is, is said to have preached that all I really came to say and all I'm going to say is this Dukkham, suffering. The world's suffering, you've got to stop suffering. So Krishna uses the word Brahma Nirvanam, he says, this, is, this world is Dukkaliyam, it's a place of Dukkha. So you can see how all these elements of Buddhism are definitely there, but coming to a different conclusion. 
Then also Krishna introduces in these chapters the idea of pure devotion, of actually being purely devoted to God without any personal selfishness. Pure love, where you have no selfish desires. Uh, that's another topic which is introduced here. Uh, any, any questions so far on this stuff? There's so much in the Gita, it's, you really need a whole semester for the Gita to do it properly, but that's life for a big public university. So, Krishna also makes some points. I think there's a very important section in chapter 9, texts um, 3 through 6. And so I want to read those too, because it's a very important ontological point. Krishna says that, uh, that I pervade this entire universe. I pervade this entire universe in my unmanifested form. Matstani Sarvabhutani Nachante Shavasita. That all beings are in me, but I am not in them. This is the first thing Krishna says. I pervade this universe in a form which you can't see, and all beings are resting in me, but I am not in them. That's the first statement. Then Krishna says, uh, all beings are not in me. All beings are not. This is a paradox. I mean, it's not that Krishna didn't forget what he just said a second ago. It's a paradox which he's going to explain. All beings are not in me. Behold my uh, mystic yoga, my mystic power. That So the idea here, he gives the example of Akasha. Let me, let me explain this. That um, Akasha means the sky. The sky or space. Space as an element contains everything. In other words, everything that exists, exists within space. And again, space is an element. It's not just the absence of anything else. Even if you have a vacuum, it's still space. So space contains everything, yet space doesn't interact with anything. In other words, if you put metal in air, let's say you have some metal, just leave it out in the open air, the air interacts with the metal, right? And it, it, it starts to it may rust. Or, so all the elements interact. Fire burns, water moistens, the earth. All the elements are interacting, affecting each other. And yet the fifth element, the most subtle, space, doesn't interact with anything. Space contains everything, it interacts with nothing. And so this is a very popular analogy, which is used actually in a lot of ancient literature. The idea is that the elements, earth, water, fire, air, space, go from gross to subtle. Earth is most gross, and therefore you can smell it, taste it, touch it, see it, and hear it. Whereas water is more subtle. Water doesn't have a fixed shape. It's subtler. And fire is even more subtle. Air is even more subtle. It's invisible. And ultimately space is the most subtle element. So Krishna is saying that just as space contains everything, yet interacts with nothing. Nothing is really touching space. It's too subtle. So the same way, everything exists within me. Krishna is saying, all things are within me, but because I'm most subtle, they don't actually interact with me. There's no physical interaction with me. Even though everything's in God, nothing is physically interacting with God, because God is so subtle. Because that's the nature, that's the nature of spiritual nature. It's so subtle. I mean, it's, is that clear? It's a little philosophical, but it's it's in the book. So, that's another point I wanted to cover. Um, then, regarding this Vedic thing, Krishna, also in chapter um, 9, says, 
But I am the sacrifice. I am the offering. I am that which is offered. So I am the mantra which is used in the sacrifice. I am the butter that's offered in the fire. I am the fire of the sacrifice. I am the oblation. So Krishna is completely identifying himself with the whole process of Vedic sacrifice. The fire, the, the offering, the mantra, everything is actually, in a sense, stands for God. And we found in the Yajur Veda, which you all, I'm sure, remember, there's that statement that Yajyovai Vishnu, that Vishnu is the sacrifice. So Krishna is taking a statement in the Vedas, and he's saying that when you engage in a spiritual activity, you're actually in touch with God, that that, 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 that activity becomes spiritualized, you become spiritualized, and... and, and the idea is that just like you put something in fire, it becomes fire. Like if you approach the sun, if you approach the sun, you become fire. You're transformed into fire. So if you approach God, you're transformed into that godly nature. That's the whole principle behind yoga. Yoga means contact, link. That if you approach God through yoga, you are transformed into a spiritual being, into that spiritual nature. By that contact, by yoga. Uh... And then there are these poignant verses, like the end of chapter 9, where Krishna says, you can offer me a fruit, and you can offer me a leaf or water, and I'll accept it. So the idea here is devotion. It's not buying off the gods. The idea is devotion. Whereas in the Vedic sacrifice, uh, it's almost like paying your cosmic taxes. In the case of devotion, uh, it's the love that counts. It's the quality of... It's like in a relationship. I mean, if, if let's say you're in a relationship, and you don't really like the person that much, and you buy them things, then it's like... I don't think so. You know, if you're in a relationship with, of course, some people, I guess, may have their price, but, but if you're in a relationship with someone that, that, like, buys you little gifts but doesn't really love you, it's not necessarily satisfying. And between two people that really love each other, you can give some little thing, and it means a lot. People sometimes keep uh, little gifts they receive from someone they love. You know, it could be a twig or, or a little note that they scroll. It could be a flower. It could be anything. It's some little memento that, that means everything because it's a symbol, it's an expression uh, of a love between the people. So that's basically what Krishna is saying. He's saying that it doesn't matter if you offer a fruit, a little water, a leaf. It doesn't matter what you offer. It's actually the, the feeling behind it which counts. And, and it's this devotion which really propels you forward spiritually. It's not just by being sort of a logic chopper, doing all kinds of sophisticated Sanskritic philosophy. It's not just doing a very elaborate ritual sacrifice, very technical sacrifice, paying a lot of money to a priest. It's really about love. It's really about devotion. And that, that was the great, that's the great revolution of the Bhakti movement, saying that that's really what counts, religiously and spiritually. Um, okay. Time is almost up. Uh, was something I really wanted to tell you, and I, what was it? Oh, yeah, uh, there's, there's this whole big controversy. There's this whole big controversy, as I explained last time, in world religions, is God personal, impersonal? Is there ultimately an impersonal God that just kind of takes on a form to communicate with earthlings? Or is God really a person? And all the world religions have struggled with this. Krishna makes a very heavy statement in uh, text 724, which I'll translate for you. Which literally means those who are a buddhi. The word buddhi means what? Right? Buddhi means intelligence. Like buddha, a buddhi means one who has no intelligence. Krishna says those who are a buddhi, 
who do not have spiritual intelligence, they believe that I am impersonal and I have taken on a personal form. This is astonishing because there are actually people claiming to... Uh, this is mentioned, by the way, in the back of this book. There, there's a section on yoga and different sections in the back. And the author of the book says that it's very common that people will claim that the Gita is sort of uh, verifying their philosophy when in fact they're teaching something which is not really what the Gita is teaching. Uh, should have marked that, but... Anyway. Anyway, believe me, it's in the back. So, so Krishna here explicitly says people who, have, who do not have spiritual intelligence believe, manyante, they believe that I am impersonal, avyaktam, and I have taken on apanam, vyakti. I mean, vyakti means a personal form. I remember I was in an elevator in Bombay one time that said, you know, uh, what does it say? Cable, chara, vyakti. You know, only, like, the elevator says, like, only four people in the elevator. And that's the word they use, like vyakti, a person. You know, the form means, it means a personal, a manifest form. So Krishna says, those who don't have spiritual intelligence believe that I'm impersonal, but I've taken on a personal form. And he says, because they don't understand my higher nature. They see me come as a human being and believe that I'm a human being, that I have a material form like this. They don't understand my higher nature, which is ultimate and which is uh, unperishing. So, the Gita is very explicit about this, about the personal nature of God, that there is such a thing as personal form and so on. And many people that claim the Gita is their book uh, miss these statements. Chapter 10, Krishna talks about how he's the source of everything. He identifies himself with many things in the sense that he's the source of everything. So again, Krishna isn't really the Himalayan mountains in the pantheistic sense that when you walk on the mountains, you're really walking in the body of God. The idea is that because everything is emanating from God, God is the source of everything. In that sense, God is everything. It is Friday, and uh, I can see everyone's batteries need recharging, so rather than push my luck, any questions? Oh, regarding, sorry for the syllabus glitches. And uh, I'll just try to send something out to you, like tonight or tomorrow morning, and uh, have a great weekend.